are entering the Freedom Hut. Are they really going to blame Trump for the shootdown by Iran of a civilian airliner? Looks like we may have isolated the virus of Trump derangement syndrome. Also, Epstein tapes are gone forever, and you're not supposed to notice or care. Pelosi's non-strategy strategy, and the Dow breaks 29,000. That and more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We caught a total monster, and we took him out, and that should have happened a long time ago. Uh, we did it because they were looking to blow up our embassy. We also did it for other reasons that were very obvious. Somebody died. One of our military people died. People were badly wounded just a week before. And we did it. And we had a shot at him, and I took it, and that shot was pinpoint accurate. And that was the end of a monster. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. You would think that now that the specter of imminent war, if you're a reasonable person, had passed, you would probably think, well, hold on, hold on a second, hold on a minute. Can't we now rally around the defense of the nation? Can't our first concern become the uh, continued defense of of U.S. interests in in the Middle East and, and here at home as well? Aren't there some things that are truly bipartisan? That would be a normal response at this point. There's no reasonable way to think, a way to come to the conclusion that we are about to fall into the midst of a war with Iran. That's not going to happen. There's a debate about war powers now, and that will be interesting intellectually, but I can tell you right now it will change nothing. But we often talk on this show about how crazy the libs are. In fact, that would be something of a mantra here. The libs are crazy. And I use that term not just derisively, although that's certainly part of it. I try to do it, I try to, to use it, to utilize it as well as, a, as a, a diagnosis of sorts, as much as I can. I'm obviously not a medical professional, nor do I play one on radio. Only when producer Mark asks me for special old-fashioned Irish cold remedies, which usually involve alcohol warmed up. But... In general, um, I do try to take an analytic approach to just how crazy the libs are. You know, what is is this a normal political dispute or is this something that shows that the elevator's not going to the top floor with a lot of these folks? And we have in some ways right now seen what I have to say is is the most stunning incidents of Trump derangement syndrome that, that I can really recall. And that's, there is stiff competition in that realm. That's really amazing. You have the president getting Iran to blink. When was the last time any U.S. president in your lifetime made a decision that the Iranians backed down from and looked bad as a result of in this way? It's been a long time. And maybe some of you are saying, oh, well, you know, Reagan, or but it's been a very very long time. And so now we have a circumstance where in the immediate aftermath of a strike like this on on Qasem Soleimani, there was this this concern that perhaps we're going to go into a a full-out 
war situation that's clearly not happening, not even close to happening. We haven't even suffered any attacks with casualties. But there was major loss of life the night that Iran, they say, retaliated. I think you could also call it escalation. Now you get into the who in this tit for tat with Iran that's been going on for decades, who is in fact really the instigator here? Was the instigation the Iranians backing a militia that killed an American contractor and wounded other servicemen? Was the instigation the Iranians bringing down a U.S. drone or seizing ships in the Strait of Hormuz in violation of international law? The Iranians had a press conference earlier this week where the flags of various terrorist groups were behind the Iranian officials because they are the funding arm of the many of the worst actors in the Middle East. I mean, there are some Sunni extremists that Iran fights against right now, but that's really just a question of who gets to have power and influence in the region. There's ideological hatreds that sometimes override even their hatred of Israel as the little Satan in America, as the great Satan in the jihadist enterprise, such as it is, can be put into a secondary role temporarily because they're fighting each other. That does happen on occasion. The Iranians have been fighting, for example, against the Islamic State in Syria, but that's a function of just competing interests. It's not that the Iranians don't like, it's not that they oppose ISIS because they're bad guys. It's they're not their bad guys and they want to be in charge. Um, but you, you saw what happened this week and all of the prognostications out there about how this was going to lead to imminent war, how this was going to get out of control. There was no way that we'd be able to come back from this. We were on the brink. All of those people saying that were wrong. It was not accurate. It did not happen. Uh, I think especially I mean, if you go back and watch the conversation that I had with the ladies on the couch of Outnumbered earlier this week, everything that I said was, I think, spot on. I mean, I'm not trying to give myself a pat on the back. That's what producer Mark is for when I'm being particularly astute. But nonetheless, I do think that there was, I, I think that people that were listening to me were in a, in a good place to understand the events of the week and people that were listening to the hysterics out there, Democrats and even some Republicans, you know, and there are these, certainly the never Trump voices that are really just stealth Democrats, but there are some still, uh, there are some that are still supportive of President Trump who are willing to take the uh, oppositional oppositional uh, narrative on this whole incident. And then things got completely crazy. I mean, then then you just, you, we've reached a new level. This is somewhat of a reminder for me when, you know, you had that initial, the initial allegation against Kavanaugh by, this will make sense in a second, by Christine Blasey Ford. And you could say, okay, I mean, she's, she has no proof. She has no evidence. Her story doesn't hold up. She doesn't remember things. It's very convenient. She's lied about other things, afraid of travel, had to have a second door in her house. I mean, she's clearly, clearly, a, you know, kind of at, at best, a little disturbed and zany. And then by the time we got through that whole debacle, uh, there at the end were people who were trying to pretend that it was somehow feasible that Brett Kavanaugh was part of a gang rape crew in high school that just went from party to party gang raping teenage girls. That was the that was the accusation that was being forwarded by Democrats and that was on the record and that was a and the person who said it is a, is an insane liar. But at that the good news at least was that 
then it was clear that this was just a smear campaign. This was an effort to just tear him down at any cost. And they overreached. The libs, because of their Trump derangement syndrome, the libs overreached there. In that case, I guess it was Kavanaugh derangement syndrome, but same idea. They've overreached again, my friends. You might be thinking, how would it be possible, given what we have seen, for the libs, there's no U.S. loss of life in response to his action. There's now additional sanctions, but also the opening of a respectful dialogue if Iran is willing to start acting like a normal country. Um, this is how you change things, by doing things differently than they've been done in the past. Nothing could be more obvious than that. And yet we've had multiple administrations fail to put that into action, fail to understand that basic maxim. And so now what do the libs do? You, you, you cannot make this up. This may be the most insane thing that has been, the most insane narrative that we have seen yet from them. The claim is that because Iran... Almost certainly now. There's some people saying, well, we have to wait for the investigation to happen. But uh, they shot a plane out of the sky. OK, that that is what happened. Why? We'll find out. You know, was it was it a human error? Was it you know, did the system malfunction? You know, how how, did, how could they do something so catastrophically, horrifically incompetent? Let's be honest. I mean, this was an accident. I don't I don't believe the Iranians wanted to do this. And other conspiracies out there about, well, who was on the plane and. But you might think, you might think that this would clearly be blamed on the Iranians. There's no way that liberals could find some means to say that this was Donald Trump's fault, right? But if you thought that, you would be wrong, my friends. Oh, yes. Across the media and even some Democrat candidates for office now, because the Iranians shot a plane out of their own sky... With a lot of Iranians on board the plane, by the way, because they did that in the course of a heightened period of hostilities that they claim Trump created by taking out Qasem Soleimani. It is therefore, according to the libs, according to the media, Trump's fault that you had over 100 civilians killed here in this plane that was shot down by the Iranians. This is completely bonkers. I mean, this is absolutely next level insane. We have, for example, and as you know, it's American media, international media, other people, Trump is the primary enemy for all of them, so it doesn't matter what the Iranians did. It's much more important to find some way to put the blame here at the feet of Donald Trump himself. That's the single most important thing that they're trying to accomplish always. I mean, we have, I'm, I'm going to go through some of the examples here. Here's uh, the CBC reporter raising this as a possible play 18. I think a significant question that Canadians, and particularly the families of these victims, are going to have is, um, are 63 Canadians dead because of the, the unintended consequences uh, of a decision made by the U.S. president? Are 63 people dead because of what Trump did? Canadians, by the way, it's over uh, 176 killed on that flight. This is Trump's fault now. This is what they're this is what they're saying. The Iranians blew a plane out of their own sky 
while engaged in an act of war, not just against us, but against the Iraqis as well. Remember, they fired missiles into Iraqi airspace, onto Iraqi soil, threatening Iraqi soldiers to have some show of force against us. No one made them do this. This was their choice. This was their decision and their incredible, horrific stupidity. And it's Trump's fault. And if you think, that, oh, why Buck? Why, why Buck? Uh, if you think that it's just some random CBC reporter, one of the top Democratic candidates for office, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, shared this one yesterday. I mean, it's like, it's like they all just get some memo. Let's go full crazy. Let's go full Trump derangement syndrome. Innocent civilians are now dead, Pete Buttigieg wrote, because they were caught in the middle of an unnecessary and unwanted military tit for tat. My thoughts are with the families and the loved ones of all 176 souls lost aboard this flight. It wasn't a tit for tat. We weren't firing at them. We weren't in the midst. Of the, no, 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 no. Hold on a second. I don't think so. Not getting away with this. The big word you were seeing last night across media, just do if you want, do a search on, on Facebook or Twitter. You'll see it come up all over the place. Crossfire. These people were caught in the crossfire. No, no, no. They weren't caught in the crossfire. The 176 people who died on that plane were caught in the Iranians being psychotic morons. It's not Trump's fault. If this is Trump's fault, everything is Trump's fault. Ah, but perhaps then we've gone to what really is going on here. Everything is. For liberals, everything is Trump's fault. This is Trump derangement syndrome. If we have isolated, you know, when you're trying to find what exactly a virus is, you take it down all the way to the the single cell level, cellular level of a um, uh, or a, a single instance, I should say, a single copy of a virus. You isolate that virus. You know what it is. We have isolated Trump derangement syndrome here. This is it as, at its core. They uh, People have been so conditioned to hate this president, to hate what's going on, to hate all the you know, new stock market high. Not fi- We're not fighting big wars. We're not doing it. We took far more casualties in wars under Bush or o- and Obama in the first four years they had in office, respectively than we are taking under this president. Not even close, not even comparable. So you have to ask the question, I mean, at what point is this all just being done in bad faith? And I can't assess the faith of the opposition to Trump because I can't assess their sanity. This is this is absurd. It's Trump's fault. I mean, this is the implication that keeps being made. Um, You had, I'm trying to find more of the of the crossfire stuff. You, you cannot make this stuff up. It's completely and utterly insane. I don't even know how we're supposed to take these people seriously. Even even uh, Tom Nichols, who finds a way to always think that Trump is terrible, like everything Trump does is horrible. Trump is so bad that, that Mr. Nichols, who's now built a career of being an anti-Trump conservative, whatever. I think he's now officially a Democrat, though. But he loves conservatism so much that he'll work with Democrats to destroy it. That's his that's his position. Uh, He would he would argue with that, but it's not really up for debate. He wants to help the other side. He wants to defeat the Republican Party. He wants to defeat conservative ideas and values in practice and in policy. Uh, But he even shared this as a major sufferer. He's being He's being facetious here. And one of the true patient zeros of Trump derangement syndrome. Let me tell the rest of you that it does not strengthen our case about Trump if you're going to blame him for every bad thing in the world. Yeah. When you've lost Tom Nichols when it comes to Trump derangement syndrome, you're really in another universe 
of crazy. But this is this is where it is. And it's also why the analysis, you know, if they're willing to do this, you have to remember the analysis that they were offering up all week was always tainted by this notion that it's most important, the most important thing, um, the most important thing is, in fact, to get at Trump. More important than war and peace, more important than matters of life and death, the people who make a living, who devote their lives, who wake up every day and what they're trying to do, they say, is bring you the truth and bring you information. The single most important thing to them is that there's a way to attack Donald Trump here. That was true in the moments leading up to the Iranians firing missiles at us. It was true in the days before that when uh, Qasem Soleimani was killed, and it's true now. Everything comes through that prism. Everything is done through that lens. We have to remember that. We have isolated the virus of Trump derangement syndrome, and it is an ugly, scary thing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so here's here's the other game the media is playing. Right on the one hand, it's well, maybe it's Trump's fault that the Iranians shot this plane out of the sky because if they if we hadn't been so mean to Qasem Soleimani, they wouldn't have had to do this. But they didn't have to do this at all. They made a choice and they messed up. That's on them, right? If we were responding to the Iranians seizing a, a ship, an oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz, for example, and we just like happened to drop a nuke on Tehran by accident. Would that be Iran's fault for us messing up? Whoops. Sorry, that ICBM, somebody hit the button. This is, this is really what's offered to you by your so-called intellectual journalist class. The people that think that Trump is such, uh, such a horrible person and such a moron, they, they make this argument and they keep a straight face while they do it. Uh, CNN's national security analyst, uh, well, I don't know if she's CNN, she was at Lawfare, I don't know, whatever, Susan Hennessy, she's one of these like completely... Uh, deranged anti-Trumpers. He's making this case yesterday. All about the crossfire. Oh, these people got caught in the crossfire. No. When one side is shooting at another side, there's one side shooting. And when someone hits somebody else, the side that's getting shot at is not part of that crossfire. Okay? <laughs> we're, we're, we're not shooting back at them. There, there was, this was a one-way, one-way ticket, one-way mission. Iranians coming after us. But now they, they keep drilling into the timeline. And I saw this morning when Pompeo was holding his press conference, they're asking, oh, well, 
but was it really imminent and, and how imminent was it? Do you remember any journalists grilling, let's say, Jay Carney, we used to call him Smarmy Smurf back in the day, if you remember, for the uh, original Saturday Squad. Do you remember journalists drilling Jay Carney on, or grilling, drilling, same thing, close enough, on the the truth of how imminent an attack was when there was a drone strike ordered by President Obama, and Obama was very clear that he was he was signing off on these strikes personally. This was not a a thing left to the generals or left. Obama was signing off on these strikes in, in Pakistan and in Yemen. This was there were articles written about this. He was open. He talked about it. He made jokes about, you know, using the drones. I forget when it was at some dinner. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, boys better stay away from my uh, my daughters. And then he said, made some joke about, you know, ordering drone strikes. So, I mean, this was, you know, he was like the drone guy. That was his big contribution to strategy. And as we know, drones are a tactic. I mean, this would be like saying I'm the Let's let's use snipers against the enemy guy. Okay, but it's not enough on its own, is it? Uh, but do you remember the press grilling Jay Carney on Anwar al-Awlaki's imminent threat that required him to be hit with a drone strike, such that also a 16-year-old he was a U.S. citizen, Anwar al-Awlaki, and a 16-year-old U.S. citizen, his son, was also killed in that strike. Now I'm not crying any tears for Anwar al-Awlaki. But I'm just trying to point, I mean, you know, like the guy was the guy was scum and it was a good thing we took him out. But I can also feel that way about Qasem Soleimani. And yet we sit here and we hear from the journalists that, you know, now they want to do their jobs. They cannot take the position that they have principles late in the game when it benefits them politically and expect us to believe that they really have principles. That's not the same thing. They have convenience. They have opportunism. They do not have principles. And in the, on this notion of the timeline, what would be an acceptable thing for Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, to say in response to this grilling this morning? I mean, what, what was he really supposed to do? They insist that there must be some malfeasance here on the part of the administration. Um, but instead of just dealing with the fact that you're not hearing any voices from the intelligence community yet that have, have disagreed with this. They say, well, why should we, this was the question that was being posed this morning, why should we believe you now, meaning you, the administration, when you say we had this intelligence, when you have said the intelligence community was wrong on other things? Okay, well, we can play this game all day. Why should you ever believe the intelligence community then? Journos? Why should you ever think that the U.S. government is telling the truth? First of all, the U.S. government was wrong about Russia collusion and Trump at the very highest level, as we know from what we've seen from the FBI and the CIA and these other places. But is that now an excuse to ignore everything they say? Oh, no, it's just an excuse when you want it to be. It's an excuse now because it's useful for attacking Trump. But it's not OK for the president to question clearly politically motivated leaks and attacks on him from within the intelligence community meant to destroy his presidency, by the way. He can't do that without them now coming back and saying, well, hold on. He objected to that effort. So if he objects to the deep state coup going on in the federal bureaucracy against him, he cannot now turn around and say the information presented to me from that federal bureaucracy indicated Qasem Soleimani was a threat. I mean, he can't win is the point here. It's, it doesn't matter what he does, what he says. They hate him. They hate him. I think in large part, I mean, there's so many reasons I and mean, you could do a whole you could really just write a book on. Maybe I should do that. Just just really do a book on Trump derangement syndrome and like lay out the case that these people are completely insane. 
this is also, a lot of this doesn't even matter enough for them to care as much as they do. None of these little journos, they're, you know, they're not getting, they're not getting drafted. You know, their lives aren't being ruined by Trump. I mean, they, they love to just cry and whine about this all the time. But it's because they are operating in this uh, echo chamber. They're operating in this journalism culture where the more woke you are, the more revered you are by your peers. And the, the height of wokeness is really hating Trump. There's nothing more woke than hating Trump. Everything else fits in beneath that. But he is the, the great threat to them. And, and one of the amazing things that Trump has done for all of us is to really clarify who these people are. And the media is never going to recover, by the way. We're, we're never going back. For those who are reasonable observers of what happens with the national news media in this country, what has been happening, we're never going back to that period where, you know, if you're just a casual watcher of news or reader of newspapers or websites, you think, you know, I th I, the media tries to be, they're not perfect, but they try to be pretty honest and fair. And we're never going back to that. It's never going to happen because it was never true. But now we know it's not true, and it's a combination of social media giving us a window into the minds of these leftist activists all the time. Oh, yeah, they tweet how much they want Trump impeached in the morning, and then in the evening it's, well, I'm just having an honest conversation with no political bias whatsoever on TV. It's total, it's total garbage, as you know. Uh, but also Trump clarifies who they are. He clarifies who the enemy is for us. We see them. They stand up now. They shriek. They scream. They hate us. They hate Trump. I guess they view those things as one in the same in so many ways. Um, here is, I mean, I've been telling you what I think the Trump doctrine is, which is basically doing what is necessary and making sure everyone knows if you kill our people, we will kill you. It's very straightforward. It's actually quite simple. And it's revolutionary in that sense, because what we're used to in foreign policy is a lot of people sitting around using SAT words and trying to out nuance one another while bad things are happening and while U.S. interests are not being protected and while U.S. citizens and military and personnel are not being protected. Here is the here's the Trumpster making it quite clear. Play 20. We have this tremendous military. And you know what that is? That's really a great fighting force, but I hope we never have to use it. I really do. You saw an example. You saw an example of that a couple of days ago. So we seek friends, not enemies, but if you dare to threaten our citizens, you do so at your own grave peril. Meanwhile, you have many different news sites while the, while the president is speaking with such clarity on this issue, you have news sites referring to a plane crash in Tehran. A plane crash. This was not a plane crash. This is the Iranians shooting a plane out of the sky with a missile. That's not a plane crash. Crossfire, plane crash. These are dishonest. Why are they using these terms? They could call it an alleged missile shoot down if they want, you know, to, to be proven with further analysis. Oh, wow, this is so funny. Donald Trump Jr. just tweeted this out before, right before uh, the show a few minutes ago. I just saw this. President Trump's superpower is getting his opposition to show their true colors. Watching the media and Democrats hysterically try to defend the Iranian regime and their actions over decades is not only telling but disgusting. Democrats have become Iran's cheerleaders. I've got to say, my favorite meme that I've seen this week it's circulating around is... <laughs> it's pretty amazing. 
It's um, the 2020 Democrat presidential primary poll. And somebody made this on Reddit. And uh, it has Pete Buttigieg at 25% with a photo of him. Joe Biden at 15%. Elizabeth Warren, 25%. Bernie Sanders, 9%. And Qasem Soleimani with 12% of the Democrat vote. <laughs> Look, I mean, they, they deserve it. They deserve to be mocked in this way because their position on all this is, is, is frankly and flatly absurd. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's disgraceful. It is completely disgraceful. But here we are. Here we are looking at this issue. And they were hoping, they were holding out for this week to be an opportunity to really stick it to Trump. You know, oh, he's made this huge blunder on Iran. He's made this terrible error. Um, and yet that didn't happen at all. In fact, they have to deal with the disappointment now of the president making a very sound decision, a decision that some would say is among the best of his presidency so far. This can always change. It can turn around. There can be unforeseen blowback or consequences. But if we're going to assess it today, I'm going to tell you how we would assess it today. President Trump, once again, has enraged his enemies with his success. And they have come up with different lies to try and undermine that, that show just how crazy they are. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. On Iran, yesterday, the president confirmed he was focused on de-escalation and defending the American people. Instead of working with the administration to make America stronger, Democrats are working against us to make us weaker. Make no mistake, today's war powers resolution cannot become law. By definition, it will never be sent to the president, and it will never limit his constitutional authority to defend the American people. It is a concurrent resolution. This is a type of resolution that we invite the soapbox derby to the Capitol. This is a meaningless vote that only sends the wrong message that the House Democrats would rather stand with the socialist base than stand against Iran. My favorite thing here is that he's calling them the socialist base. The Democrats are socialists. Let's start to say it. Let's start to be clear about this. Let's not back away from this anymore. Democrats are socialists. Do you want a socialist country? Do you want a socialist America? They are socialists. Let's just let's just let it out. Let's just let it rip. Let it out there. Let's be honest about it. But now on the war powers component of this, uh, does anyone really think this is going to this is going to change anything? Oh, and I'm sorry, I, I left this out. We got to have this. This is Pelosi sounding like I mean Pelosi might as well be working for like Fars. I think the Iranian state TV state news agency. Uh, here's Pelosi t- taking Iran, Iran's side. Remember, Iran is a, is a country run by very bad people who do terrible things, okay? Iran is the country where you can't, you have no free speech, you have no rights, they hang gay people from cranes so that everybody can see them after they've been brutally murdered. That's what Iran is. But Nancy Pelosi, you know, feels bad for Iran right now. Play clip 17, please, Mark. The, uh, the argument would be made that putting the shoe on the other foot if the United States had a high level, maybe the second most important person in the country, assassinated wherever uh, the United States might consider that assault on our country, right? And the Iranians might as well, even though this took place at the Iraqi airport. And so it's, it, it's 
foggy. There are those who think, well, it was in Iran, so it counts. But it was an assault on Iran, so it shouldn't count. I mean, this is the person that the Democrats hold up as the savvy political operator, the grand strategist of the Democratic Party, and is is just absurd. Absurd in her analysis of this. But I'm glad that Nancy Pelosi's out there and willing to take the Iranian side of this a little bit, you know, to do some let's stand in their shoes for a minute analysis. Thanks, Nancy Pelosi. You're really helpful. Um, thanks, Nancy Pelosi. You're really showing us who who you are in all of this. Uh, Sarah Sanders is having none of it, by the way, former White House press secretary. Uh, she doesn't she doesn't like first of all, she doesn't like this war powers dust up that's going on right now or this is the, the Congress is asserting its power to declare war after 20 years of abdicating that power on an issue where we're not about to go to war. Trump has made it very clear he doesn't want war, is not going to go to war. I mean, the Iran, the Iranians would have to force us. Any country could force us into a war with them. That is possible. Right. I mean, if the, if the leadership of any nation engaged in a mass casualty attack against our people, we'd be at war with that country. So any country can force us into a war. And, you know, we wouldn't stop until that leadership was gone and there was accountability and et cetera, et cetera. But Trump is not trying to push us into a war at all. And the people on the right who are suggesting that that's happening, I think, are also just being really, really uh, hyperbolic about all of it. Uh, here is Sarah Sanders. Play 21, please. Uh, you know, I can't think of anything dumber than allowing Congress to take over our foreign policy. They can't seem to manage to get much of anything done. I think the last thing we want to do is push powers into Congress's hands and take them away from the president. Any Democrat that doesn't understand that America is safer now that one of the most dangerous terrorists in the world is rotting in hell is completely naive and completely misses what we need to have in a foreign policy. And the last thing I want to do is see them take power away from President Trump and put it into their own hands. I don't think anything could be worse for America than that. I mean, could you imagine giving the power the executive branch has to make decisions and use military force, use lethal force against our enemies? You're going to you're going to run that by committee. You're going to put Congress in charge of the of the day to day. Look, Congress has oversight. Congress has power of the purse. Congress writes laws. Right? There are things that Congress can do. And certainly Senate ratifies treaties. I mean, there are roles here to be played, but you don't hand over all of that authority to the Congress. And in a situation like this, where we have all these non-state actors, keep in mind, it was much less of a concern back in the day that there would be non-state actors who could effectively wage war against us without there being a country for us to declare war on. And that's part of the complexity. I mean, I know I've said that they've abdicated their responsibility, but there are there are layers here. Heaven forbid if I say it, there is actually some nuance in our national security and foreign policy of the last 20 years that we have to deal with because of all the non-state actors like al-Qaeda. But this noise that's being made over war powers right now, it's just going to turn into that noise. Nothing will change, my friends. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Mr. Secretary, Secretary Pompeo, do you believe that the Iranians shot down the Ukrainian International Airways uh, plane? And if the Iranians shot that plane down, will there be consequences? We, we do believe that it's likely that that plane was shot down by an Iranian missile. Uh, we are, we're going to let uh, the investigation play out before we make a final determination. It's important that we get to the bottom of it. Uh, I've been on the phone. I was on the phone with President Zelensky. Uh, just before I came here, I was on the phone with my Canadian counterpart. Uh, they were working to get their resources on the ground to conduct that thorough investigation. We'll learn more about what happened to that aircraft. Uh, and when we get the results of that investigation, I am confident. And we, we and the world will take appropriate actions in response. What might those actions be? And how certain are we that this was, in fact, what it seems to be, at least to me, which is an Iranian missile strike on a plane by accident? Uh, we have General Anthony Tata joining us now. He is also a novelist. His, uh, latest, his latest work is Double Crossfire, which came out last month. General Tata, thanks so much for being on the show. Great to be with you, Buck. Uh, so it seems that Iran didn't clear its airspace during this missile strike on, people keep referring to it as a missile strike on us. It's also a missile strike on Iraqi soil, Iraqi airspace and facilities and endangering their personnel. So it's really an act of war against both of us. Um, is there any doubt in your mind that the, the Iranians were at least responsible for this? I mean, we can find out more of the details. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind, Buck. Yeah, you can visualize it uh, that there's a operator of a you know Russian surface air missile system and uh, you know bad command and control, and you know a plane takes off. They think it might be a cruise missile coming in, and they slam it out of the sky. It, it's you know it, I, you don't need to be a fiction writer to come up with that scenario. And you know that, what's crazy though is you know, guys like Pete Buttigieg blaming Trump. Uh, for, you know, this action uh, when, in fact, you know, Iran, this is just an example of how wayward Ar Iran is right now. They they have completely, completely lost their way and, and they've been lost. And, and this is an example that, you know, they they uh, have Soleimani out there uh, sowing terror all throughout the Middle East. Uh, we kill him rightfully. Uh, and when you think about the 602 deaths you know, the, you know, the factor is 10 times that are wounded. So that's 6,600 people killed and wounded just by the explosive form penetrators that Soleimani and Iran supplied to the militias in Iraq. And then you think about the thousands of families from those 6,600 people. Uh, Soleimani's dead. I'm glad he's dead. He deserves to be dead. And there's no fault, no blame whatsoever on America or President Trump for uh, executing, uh, defending the the U.S. Embassy. I, I don't know what the Democrats need for, you know, imminent threat. I think it's body bags. Benghazi is their example of responding to an imminent threat a couple of days later. And, you know, President Trump, thank God, uh, you know, if it was minutes or days or hours away, he responded and stopped an attack uh, by the Iranians, by the militias uh, coordinated by Soleimani on our personnel and property in in, uh, in Iraq. And so Iran is lost. They are they are wayward and and they need to take a step back and figure out what the hell they're doing. And General Tata, you were in the military for 28 years. You were the deputy commanding general of the 10th Mountain Division when it was in Afghanistan. You have seen the enemy. You know the enemy. You understand the calculations that they make on the battlefield how do you see now that Qasem Soleimani has been taken out by this president, how do you see that affecting Iranian calculations vis-a-vis -vis us and our allies in the region and around the world really going forward? 
Yeah, uh, uh, great question. You cannot over um, uh, estimate the impact that uh, uh, killing Soleimani has had because uh, networks, leadership, Elon, all of that stuff means something. Uh, you know, it's it, it, he's he's been lionized by you know our press, the Western press. You know, the they they covered his funeral and all of that because you know they're fawning over him with his salt and pepper eyebrows, as the New York Times described him, and all of that. Uh, he's an evil, terrible guy, but he had a vast network from the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon through Syria, all throughout uh, the northern tier of Africa into the um, lower part of the southwest uh, Asia. And and so with him gone, you just can't reinvent those networks. The trust that he had uh, and, and trust is a huge thing. Power, trust, all of those intangibles that he built over decades of operating in that region evaporated. And yeah, he has deputies. He has other people that were traveling with him, one of whom was killed. And, and so now, you know, the, the successor has to go try to reinvent all that. I don't think so. If he does, it'll take time and, and power vacuums will get filled. And so that's really what we need to be thinking about is who's going to be filling the power vacuums, not just of Soleimani, but of all these micro relationships that he had uh, in Lebanon and Syria, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, Yemen, northern tier of Africa, Somalia, and because it was vast. They are the number one state sponsor of terror, that, and they just lost their, you know, I, I now, uh, the analogy is uh, they, we took their queen off the, off the chessboard. Uh, he was moving all around uh, the world, and, and in particular, Southwest Asia, and they responded by moving a pawn to an empty square. And, and that's where they are right now. And and they're they're trying to figure out where they go from here without that piece on the chessboard. Now I know when you, when you finally entered civilian life, you left and you were you were senior brass in the military. But I I know you're also uh, in contact with with folks all the way up and down the chain of command, obviously. And have you gotten a sense from some of those that you either were commanding or that uh, you know that that you you served with? Um, that there is a sense that this was justice done, especially meaning justice done by taking out Qasem Soleimani because of the hundreds of Americans that he, and I think this is important for everyone to understand too, they, he wasn't ordering Americans to be taken out because Americans were trying to take out Iranians. He was ordering Americans to be maimed and killed uh, in, in Iraq, a theater of operations outside of, of, of Iran, because he thought it was advancing Iranian power interests. That's I mean, it, it wasn't it was, it was not a defensive action. Do you have you been hearing from people that taking out Qasem Soleimani feels like justice for a lot of those who served? Yeah, absolutely. Every soldier, sailor, airman, marine and their family members that uh, with whom I served and who I have had the opportunity to communicate with are are glad he's dead. They knew who this guy was. You know, probably 90 percent of the country didn't know he was. But it's very personal to all of us uh, that, uh, you know, we're in uh, the military or, you know, three letter agencies who were over there. Uh, as as were you and and you know it's a personal thing when and, you know I've lost soldiers uh, that that uh, two explosive form penetrators and those came from Iran those were strategized to be emplaced by uh, Soleimani the networks that Soleimani created were the EFP networks and the you know Sadr city and and all of those really really tough areas that that where we had really uh, tough combat and lots of casualties that was at the hands of the of the uh, Shia militias that were fighting us, as you said, to advance Iranian interests, because their ultimate end state 
was to have a Shia government, which they have in Baghdad, and and to increase their hegemony and their drive to power in the region. You know, the Persians and Arabs have hated each other for thousands of years, and now all of a sudden, Persia has an inroad into uh, you know the Arab world in Baghdad, and it's a really interesting dynamic that's happening today. Yeah, I remember being in Baghdad 2008, and and just. My, my my position, my opinion was, you know, I was hoping some of those these bad guys from the Shia militias and that are tied in with the Iranians, you know, I was I was hoping that, for example, Muqtada al-Sadr was going to find himself on the wrong end of a JDAM. But anyway, so I, I've not forgotten those guys and what they were doing at all. And I know those who were serving on the front lines and, and in combat roles certainly haven't uh, in the, they haven't forgotten that in the least. We're speaking to General Tata. He's talking to us about what's going on in Iran. And, and I also want to ask you, General, because you were uh, Deputy Commanding General for 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan and you know, I was in Afghanistan in 2010, and I just feel like this—it's—it's it's the same routine year in year out, year in year in year out, and we're just trying to hold this whole thing together. I understand the downside if we were to finally draw down, but I also understand the downside of continuing uh, military operations that are really halfway, which is probably a generous way to describe it right now. What do you think that, that the president, if you were advising the president on this issue right now, especially going into this election, to make make bold decisions on Afghanistan, what would you say you should do? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I, I think that uh, we should begin a wholesale um, exchange of our troops, uh, probably 10 to 1 with private military contractor force that can secure uh, Bagram Air Base and uh, Kandahar Air Base and keep uh, over the horizon forces that those two uh, special operations forces, rangers, and et cetera, that can that can raid uh, terrorist hideouts. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know it's a law of diminishing returns that we've had on the training the uh, Afghan uh, national police, Afghan national army, and and building capacity in their government. Either they've got it or they don't by now, right? After you know 19 years, and so. Uh, I, I am all for uh, getting our troops out of there and having a some kind of a, a coalition uh, of uh, private military contract force over there to continue to advise the the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, and then uh, begin to uh, unstick ourselves from that tar baby and, and bring our, our men and women home. And so it sounds to me like you are supportive of, and I don't know if you've worked with him or talking about this, but... Uh, Eric Prince, the founder of, of Blackwater, he, he has been he's written the Wall Street Journal about this. Uh, are, are your plans very similar or? Yeah, Eric and I co-authored an article um, in, uh, for Fox Digital that basically says just that. OK, so you guys are on the same page about about what that plan would be. I'm, I'm familiar. I've talked yeah. to him about it. I'm familiar with with his work on this issue, that issue as well. Well, General Tato, really appreciate your time today, and of course, we thank you for your service. Just want to note, your novel, Double Crossfire, just came out last month. Uh, my understanding is proceeds from that still go to help wounded veterans. Is that the case? I, I, I am the chairman of the board of the North Carolina Heroes Fund, and I, I give a big chunk of money to them every year from my royalties. That's correct. All righty. Everyone go check it out, Double Crossfire. General Tato, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I know the Republican leader must be upset he cannot exert total control over this process. But Speaker Pelosi has done just the right thing. And I can understand why Speaker Leader McConnell is so frustrated. If the Speaker had sent the articles of impeachment over to the Senate immediately after they passed... 
Senate Republicans could have moved to dismiss the articles. There was a lot of talk about that a while ago. There wouldn't have been a fair or even a cursory trial. And they might have even tried to dismiss the whole articles before Christmas. Instead, over the past few weeks, not only have they been prevented from doing that, there have been several crucial disclosures of evidence that appear to further incriminate the president. Schumer's delusional. We know that, right? Or maybe he's just a really practiced liar. It's probably both. Um, We've got breaking news for you. That was what Schumer was saying about Pelosi's gambit here to avoid, to delay sending the articles of impeachment through. Turns out Pelosi is going to send the articles through. This just happened. Uh, This is up on Politico now. Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she will transmit the articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump next week. This just broke today, ending a heated standoff with Senate Republicans over the terms of the impeachment trial. Oh, looks like my man Jesse Kelly, who's out with a sniffle today, from what I understand. Uh, Looks like Jesse Kelly owes the Buckster a stake. I'm not saying I'm always right, but I'm pretty much always right. So here we are. Pelosi is going to send it over. Um, yesterday he showed, oh, sorry, McConnell also signed on to his Senate GOP resolution to change the chamber's rules and dismiss Trump's impeachment of House Democrats didn't transmit the articles within a certain time frame. Yesterday he showed his true colors and made his intentions to stonewall a fair trial even clearer by signing on to a resolution that would dismiss the charges, Pelosi wrote. My friends, this whole impeachment fiasco is just a giant point of evidence a giant piece of evidence of how crazy and lame and absurd the Democrats have really gotten. I mean, they, they should they should be ashamed of themselves for what they've done here. Absurd stuff from the Democrats. You've got to be kidding me. We went through all this for what? For what? So that cocaine Mitch can say, you know, say hello to my little friend and uh, is the adios. This is Dunzo. That's what's about to happen here. There's not going to be any any big grandstandy trial. There's not going to be any removal of the president. So what we spent as a country three months just having to sit around and and marinate in the machinations and pseudo agony. And, oh, we don't want to impeach the president. It's going to make us so sad. We just we just wish we could avoid it. But we can't avoid it because the president's such a mean, mean man. It has been so terrible. Uh, and there's also this is also pierced, I believe, the mythology around Nancy Pelosi as some kind of grand strategist. She is not some grand strategist at all. Like I said, she is cunning and she is ruthless, which can get you very far. But that's not the same as being intelligent and being a grand strategist. Kevin McCarthy understands what's been going on here. Please play uh, producer Mark clip three. Now, let's first talk about the impeachment. Would you sit and read and listen to lawmakers and Speaker Pelosi's own party have no idea what she is doing? Senator Feinstein, the senator from California, my senator and and Speaker Pelosi's senator, but she's even more. She's the hometown senator for Nancy Pelosi. She said, the longer it goes on, the less urgent it becomes. So if it's serious and urgent, send them over. If it is not, don't send it over. What else do you have to know? It can't be both. It can't be serious and urgent, and then you sit on it and do nothing and try to figure out how to make it seem more serious than it is and more urgent than it is. It cannot be both things, right? 
You can't have an ambulance taking somebody to the hospital and running red lights and saying, oh, my gosh, if we don't get this person there, they're, they're, they're having a heart attack. We've got to get them to the ER right away. And then they arrive at the ER and they sit outside and they say, well, we're going to think about this one for a little bit. Make you reconsider whether they really have somebody who's having a heart attack inside, right? It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous what they've been doing here. And it just goes to show you that while the Democrats are always wagging a finger at Trump and, of course, his supporters, pretending that they're the mature, responsible ones, that there's a a sense of of normalcy that would return if only Trump were not president. Uh, There's nothing that they are unwilling. There's no level of foolishness that they're unwilling to approach in these areas. And uh, it's it's just a it's a shame, really. I'm trying to find something, by the way. (laughs) This is amazing. Gabriel Sherman, who's an oh so serious writer for either The New Yorker or New York Magazine, you know, one of the same to me as far as I'm concerned. He tweeted this out. <laughs> These libs are so crazy. It's amazing. I don't I don't understand anymore. Like, what are they even? A Dow, the Dow just broke 29,000. Not going to war. Country's great. Things are good. <sighs> Gabe Sherman t- tweeted this out. There's something super disconcerting hearing NPR anchors talk about Trump in that soothing NPR voice normalizes Trump in a way that he shouldn't be. <laughs> you can't even, you're not even allowed to speak in normal tones. I, I, I'm not making this up. You're not allowed to speak in normal tones about Trump because that normalizes him. That, uh, that's a problem now. I, I, if, if they're not crazy, if these people aren't crazy, what is the explanation? I mean, what has happened to them? Maybe in this world we live in where you have the constant, you know, interaction and interfacing with all these different, uh, you know, social media and you've got these echo chambers of ideology and people that never have to engage with the other side in a meaningful way. And it just it's like we're all being trained as little little. Well, at least the libs are all being trained as little lab rats to just think orange man bad, orange man bad all day. And we see the consequences of this. We see it playing out in real life around us all the time. Gabe Sherman. (laughs) NPR has to be like, Trump, oh my gosh, every time they talk about him. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we got our buddy Chadwick Moore in the house. He is a columnist for uh, Spectator USA. He's joining us now. He has hosted the show before. He has insights on many things. Mr. Chadwick, how are you, sir? Hey, Buck, I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm good, dude. So Pelosi has said she's going to be sending the articles over next week. What What do you think is the current is, is the Democratic Party in a little bit of a quiet panic right now because uh, it didn't it didn't get what it wanted from the Mueller probe. It didn't get what it wanted from impeachment. Its candidates look, look super weak. I mean, try try to walk me through in your mind where, where they're at right now. Quiet panic is is really insightful and perfect, I think, because the panic was loud and violent up until all this impeachment nonsense, I think. And maybe reality is starting to set in a bit that everything they try to throw at the president completely fails. And no one's interested in impeachment. This is, what, the third time in history that a president has been impeached and the first time that no one cares. And if you look at the polls, especially with independent voters, uh, something like 60 percent say they're not paying attention and they don't even care about this. Um, you're also exactly right to bring up the fact that their candidates are completely lackluster. Nobody is really there's no uh, there's 
no enthusiasm really behind any of them, uh, with the exception of the kind of fringe figures like Yang or Paul or uh, uh, Gabbard. But you know, Gabbard's been kind of booted out of the club. So, um, you, th- what else do they have but just sort of go through the motions of what they've already started? And um, they're not expecting anything to happen. And, and what's the Senate going to do? They're not going to they're not going to vote to impeach him. I'm just curious, you know, because because we, we've talked before on the show about Mayor Pete and how there is a sense from within. And, you know, you told me this and I've seen this written about elsewhere. There's a sense from within the gay community um, that Mayor Pete is somehow I, how do we describe it? not not gay enough or representative enough of the gay community. Right. That's the. Where, you know, on the left right now, is there one candidate who has the the majority of LGBTQ advocacy and institutional support? Like who? You know what I mean? I mean, Biden, for example, does the best with African-American voters in the primary. Who is the choice of LGBTQ voters if it's not Mayor uh, Mayor Pete in the Democratic primary? Is there somebody? That's a great question. And no, I don't think there's someone. I see more enthusiasm for Warren from from gay voters than for Pete. Pete uh, gay voters don't like Mayor Pete. They don't like him at all. They're kind of you'll watch the, the gay magazines and blogs that are kind of forced to celebrate him. But you get the sense that it's very inauthentic. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, is LGBT this kind of a uh, uh, monolithic lobbying device and media machine that really doesn't have anything to do with um, gay individuals, but more more left-wing political ideology, more support of the Democratic Party, more of this kind of neo-Marxism. They don't like him because he's a white male and he's allegedly Christian. And uh, that's um, not what they're about. You know, it doesn't matter if he's gay. It's the white male thing that they uh, really despise. And also, you know, so he's not, he's not woke enough in that sense. Um, and, and another thing is that gay people just don't see him as a kind of representative of gay culture and gay community. I mean, he, he came out very late in life when people are kind of, you know, when it was also very politically expedient, married the first guy he dated. And it's, uh, you know, that he doesn't really seem like the gays that most people know at the drag shows having points with their friends or whatever. Uh, his big fans, I think, are straight people in in media institutions like New York Magazine and uh, and the New York Times and, and uh, uh, CNN and MSNBC, that's kind of where his enthusiasm is. I mean, you, you live out in out in uh, in Brooklyn among the hipsters, and yeah. I'm just wondering who, who is who is the if you are super woke, if you write for you know Deadspin and HuffPo, are you a Bernie person? Is that how it breaks down? I'm, I'm trying to get, like, what a sense is here. I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of, of, like, the flavors of leftism in this primary. Like, who's who's going for who? Because I know there's a lot of them right now in the can- and that are running. Right. And it's a great question, and there's no good answer for it. The, the hipsters out in my neighborhood, uh, they're kind of fractured between Warren and Bernie. There's still the Bernie uh, residuals from 2016, but, that, but the enthusiasm isn't there that was in 2016. And a lot of those Bernie people, if he doesn't get the nomination, they're going to stay home. Or they might vote Trump. I've heard I've heard Bernie people, far left socialists, say they would vote for Trump over anyone besides Bernie, which is very interesting. Uh, it's still that hatred of the Democrat Party and the machine that a lot of them have when they feel they got shafted by Hillary, which they did. Uh, so I really don't see the the woke candidate now. What's going to happen? What I think is whoever gets the nomination, probably Biden or, or maybe Warren, they're going to have to pick the woke. 
uh, vice president to get those people energized. You know, it's going to have to be like the woman of color, the Stacey Abrams or something like that. Um, that, that that's what that's what I think you're going to see the kind of hipster and, and social justice enthusiasm come in. But right now for, for the top of the ticket, uh, they're just not really on board, you know, and Tulsi could maybe have done it. But the, but the party hates her. and They've, they've chapped her, too. So who knows? I'm a little surprised there hasn't been more of, you know, I talked to David Harsani from National Review about this yesterday because he referred to the Democrats as socialists. And I say this now all the time. I said, we, well, why can't we call them? They're socialists. I mean, this this was considered a slur under the Obama administration. And people even said that there were racial undertones to referring to President Obama's socialism. I'm like, no, it's, it's, just, it's just he just likes socialism. It has nothing to do with anything. That is that is racial in nature. Um, but that was that was the way they shut it down. Then now you've got Bernie Sanders running. Elizabeth Warren's policies are for I mean, for most folks, I think, essentially indistinguishable from Bernie Sanders there, who, who is saying he's a Democratic socialist. But the the hard left hasn't really yet embraced being called socialist, which I find I find so interesting. You know, you'll have people that are very get very huffy. They say Bernie Sanders is a, a democratic socialist. It's like, okay, well, so what? He's still a so like so. Well, you know, what's with? Do you think is that gamesmanship just about trying to fool people who are not quite as far left, or are, are they just being uh, you know just being ornery for like? Well, why not just admit that they're socialists? I guess is what I'm getting to now. Right. And Maduro down in Venezuela is also literally a democratic socialist. There are elections there. So uh, there you have that. Um, Good question. I think I mean, you do have especially the younger you go. So, you know, a lot of college students and fresh out of college do embrace socialists, even go as far to say communist. Uh, Antifa is obviously very openly, you know, they use those words to describe themselves. I think with the mainstream, I mean, this, this is a good question. And I think a lot of it has to do with if you look at someone like Warren, I mean, socialism looks very different today than if you're talking about like Red Scare era America, right? And we know that firstly because of well, the, 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 the targets have changed. It's no longer about uh, the working class versus the leadership class because these left-wingers are all rich people. So they took the old, you know, this is what neo-Marxism did. They took the old economic oppressors and they turned it into race and class. So the straight white male became the new target over the, uh, you know, the workers versus the, uh, the managers or whatever. So with that, I think, comes because so many of these Democrats, so many of these socialists like Elizabeth Warren are wealthy people who benefited from the so-called private market. You see their corporatism, like Hillary Clinton's, their big corporatism is a new kind of socialism that we that, that we haven't seen before. It's not the Soviet Union. It's a lot of these private, massive companies that support them and donate to them, which kind of want to get in bed with the government. And, and it's, it's something new that that they don't perhaps, you know, like that term, but it's uh, and it's not the term I grew up with, but it's still the same thing. It just has new characters and new forces at play. Yeah. Even in the most, you know, even really the, the most socialist economies, there's always some version of market economics at work. I mean, you can't entirely escape the market. So it, when you're when you're discussing socialism, it's always a question of, of degree, really. You know, there's you know, people say, well, it's never really been tried or there's no, you know, no one ever, ever has done pure socialism. Well, yeah, pure socialism is actually not really possible uh, but I, I just would I would put out there that uh, I, I do think that the next whoever the next Democrat president is I think is going to be running I mean I think it's going to be somebody who is who is if we're being honest accurately described as a full-on socialist I think that that's true I, I don't see how else they could win if, if, if they aren't because they, they need that uh, that's where the party's going and they need that support and energy behind them if, they, if they're not going full-on socialist 
Uh, and, and, you know, Liz Warren's one of those people who just will go wh- whichever way the wind's blowing and says she has a plan for everything. So if socialism is what it is, then that's what she's going to do. Are, are you a little, um, by the way, are, are you a little t- uh, just stunned by the resilience of Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I keep bringing this up on radio. When she did her whole DNA, you know, 23andMe thing, whatever that was, and it was like, Hi, I'm one 1,024th Native American. And, like, Democrats have all just forgotten about that. Be like, yeah, whatever. It's amazing. You know, I got to say, I have to give her some props for the fact that she powered through that and has kind of owned it. I mean, that's, that's amazing within itself. I'm also supremely impressed by the fact that she wears the exact same black cat suit with a different colored blazer over, on top of it every time she appears anywhere. Uh, that's equally impressive. Uh, so, yeah, she's managed to uh, escape the Pocahontas uh, slurs somehow. <laughs> Good for her. All right. Well, every oh, by the way, before I let you go, Epstein. They just told us now. This is official. This isn't a court filing. That they have they ju- they've lost forever, forever erased the Manhattan Correctional Facility video of right outside, which was what you would need to see to know who's going in and out of the cell. The night Epstein killed himself, that footage from that camera in a court filing is gone forever. And they look at us all, and we're all supposed to say, oh, okay, you know, sure. Isn't that incredible? And their, and their uh, explanation is they preserved the footage, and then it turned out to be from a different floor and the wrong camera, and now the correct footage is, oops, it's been deleted. Oh, okay, yeah, we all believe this. Uh, I don't know if you caught that CBS, uh, 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 I don't know if there's 60 Minutes, whatever shows on CBS, when they did a big expose about it. It's almost undeniable. You have you have you look at the injuries on his neck. They have the photos, and they're like, "This is not strength. This is not hanging. This is strangulation." Uh, so, guess we'll never know. Uh, do you have a Do you have a theory, or are you just like you don't accept the way things are right now? I think. I mean, it doesn't seem like he killed himself. I mean, and it does. I mean, that's what everyone believes. I mean, this is one of those issues that's uniting the the left and the right. Anyone who's, who's outside of uh, the elites of the Democrat Party, maybe. Um, but uh, uh, it's looking towards you have these medical examiners just for the nature of the injuries, which the, the three bones broken in his neck, which this medical examiner had said he's never ever seen before from a hanging. The fact that the if you look at the lacerations on his neck, they're in the center of his neck. Well, if you're hanging yourself. Uh, you know, you're, you're, the laceration is going to be up underneath your jawline because of gravity. It's going to be pulled down. This is on the center of his neck. So how do you hang yourself um, with, uh, with that, uh, with, with creating those kind of injuries? Another thing is they released photographs of his cell. Now, this is someone who was supposed to have been on suicide watch. They took him off suicide watch. He claims he never killed himself before he died or tried to kill himself before he died. He said he was attacked by his cellmate. So they released photos of his cell. In his cell, there is an electrical cord for some some, uh, uh, device he had. There are ballpoint pens. There's all sorts of items you could use to easily kill yourself. And this was done with a piece of cloth that doesn't look like it could it could cause those uh the types of injuries on his neck if you look at the photographs and they're and they're very graphic and uh uh very you know very sharp injury to his neck yeah i just have to wonder also at what point is it fair to say that we're being asked to be coincidence theorists here like this is just that no one's ever died in the mcc before 
uh, in this way, they kill themselves under this similar uh, set of circumstances where they've had a very high security around them. Uh, the footage is gone. You have Dr. Bodden. I know he's being paid by Epstein's brother to do the autopsy, but I don't think this guy is going to, you know, why, why would he lie about what's in the autopsy? It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Um, he's the most famous autopsy person in the world, as far as I know. And he's saying there's no way the hyoid bone was. I just you add all this up. And at some point, it's like, I mean, wh- when are we supposed to say that this is just not this is just not going to fly? I, that's I, mean, I think we're kind of already there. Oh, wait, well, well, before we let you go, also, Justin Trudeau's beard up or down on the uh, a thumbs up or thumbs down. No, thumbs down. Oh, my God. <laughs> you're, you're, you're anti-Trudeau beard? Okay. Uh, at least we got the important stuff out today. Chadwick Moore, everybody. Follow him on Twitter. Check out The Spectator where he writes good things. Chadwick will come back and host the show sometime soon. Chadwick, thank you, sir. Thanks so much, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. On war powers, Senator Paul went on CNN last night and said that you don't understand the history of the Constitution on this issue. Um, One, your response to that, but also do you think he's an outlier in the caucus on this issue? Well, if I had an eye problem, I would go to it. (laughs) (laughs) If I had a constitutional question, he'd be the last guy I would pick. Ooh, Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham getting a little little feisty there with Rand Paul. Go to him with an eye problem, not with a constitutional problem. Fair enough. I just I just kind of like that line. I, I I enjoy when Lindsey Graham decides he's going to kind of, you know, strut his stuff and throw some elbows and get a little. And I, hey, you got to give him credit for what he what he did at the moment at the moment of truth in the Kavanaugh hearing. I'll never forget Lindsey Graham was the guy who stood up and and made it happen and gave the speech that needed to be given. Um, it said the things that needed to be said at that point in time, at that moment. So, uh, anyway, I mean, and I'm also somebody, I try not to do the conspiracy stuff. I know we're just talking to Chadwick Moore a moment ago about, um, about Epstein, but let's, let's be real here for a second, guys. There's so much that we're being asked to accept with all this. There's so much we're, we're being asked to just assume happened. It's happenstance. There's nothing more, nothing more to it than that. And uh, I'm just I'm long past the point where I'm willing to accept that this is what we're being told that it is. This guy got a deal. I mean, let, can we just just do a quick review here of, of the Epstein things? This guy got a deal that nobody would ever get under similar circumstances involving, uh, you know, crimes, sexual crimes against minors. Um, the most sweetheart deal you could ever imagine. Um, this guy then was able to continue on in public life and have connections to the most powerful people in the world for years and years and years. No one really knows how he made his money. He lived in an $80 million house in New York City that he didn't even buy. It was kind of given to him. No one really understands that. He was running a surveillance operation, and we have no tapes of the, you know, we've no, nothing has been found by the FBI with the surveillance tapes of what he was taping and all that stuff. And then the whole suicide situation, which we went through in some detail before, um, it's just... It's just too much. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I can't. I can't believe in this string of coincidences. I, I can't sit here and tell you that it's something that adds up. It just. It flatly does not. It blatantly requires you to suspend far too much disbelief to come to the conclusion that this is. Uh, you know, this is the way. You know that, that what we're being told is what really happened. Maybe it is what happened, but there's a lot more that we don't know that we need to know to understand what went on here.
Anyway, are we going to talk about the royal family in the show? We might have my might have my friend uh, from the Examiner, Tiana Lowe, join to tell us about that because everyone's all, ooh, I'm pretty sure we fought a war against the British and won so that we could spend the rest of human history never thinking about the royal family ever again, but maybe there's a lesson to be learned here. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Has an American begun the disintegration of the British royal family? Is that what's going on right now? I don't know much about these things, but I know somebody who does. Our friend Tiana Lowe is back in the house. She's a commentary writer at the Washington Examiner, and she joins us now to tell us about all the things. Tiana, happy 2020. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right. Tell us what's going on here. We have the uh, the British royal family perhaps ripped asunder, and people are so upset. I'm not one of them, but you got to tell us what's going on because some people really care. What is happening? So in an unprecedented move... Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, now the Duchess of Sussex, formerly known as the American actress, Meghan Markle, they have announced that they will step back from their position as senior royals, um, which they claim means that they will become financially independent, no longer use taxpayer funds, and not work among the uh, senior monarchy, and instead operate as quasi-retired agents of the crown. If it sounds confusing, it's because it is kind of them wanting to have their cake and eat it too. And it seems pretty clear why they did this. So as members of the monarchy, they must be both apolitical and they are not allowed to personally profit off of their brand. This is why you don't see William and Kate making comments about Trump, not making comments about Obama. When they represent the state, they are representing Britain as a nation, not as a party. William or uh, Meghan, we already know, is liberal, woke, feminist, anti-Trump, she, when she was still a private citizen, she would, she would condemn him. We know that Harry really cares about climate change. And more importantly, we also know that Meghan has forayed her beauty and brains into a B-list acting role, into becoming a princess, and now who knows what else. They've trademarked the term Sussex Royal for dozens, if not hundreds, of pieces of merchandise because they understand they can basically become royal influencers. This is exactly what they want to do. And so, obviously, the palace is up in arms about this because you cannot say that, oh, they can still represent the Commonwealth at various events or they can still represent an apolitical monarchy that's supposed to be a respected and esteemed body while pawning cheap crap on Instagram, which is exactly what they're doing. And so it kind of has everyone a little bit ticked. Um, And it's just an interesting clash of so many cultures, generation to generation, British to American, um, you know, so it, it's it's really been unfolding spectacularly on, on social media. I mean, I see here on, on the New York Post website that Prince Charles is a deeply unimpressive fellow, uh, which I guess is true of most of the British monarchy in recent years, threatens to cut off Prince Harry and Meghan. Uh, is there a mechanism in place to, to take these... Uh, I don't know. I feel like they're all spoiled brats. But anyway, is there a mechanism in place to cut off their their royal allowance? So, yes. So, officially, they're saying that they will renounce their formal allowance. But everyone knows that Charles siphons off money to both Prince William, who will one day be king, and Prince Harry, the spare, so to speak. Um, And so, Prince Charles can, can siphon off that. But the real clout will be what the queen does with the press. So, historically speaking, the press has respected the palace's request 
for various media blackouts, ranging from the very valid, which, such as when Harry was touring in Afghanistan and the press agreed to keep that a secret because it would have put troops in peril, to the inane when they shut down, for instance, early last year in small part because people believe that Megan was leaking to Hollywood bloggers. There were these media reports about did Prince Harry or did Prince William cheat on Kate Middleton? And those stories all get shut down in British media because they honor the crown. Now, if the, uh, Tian... gives the press, if the queen gives the press the go ahead, she, Megan and Harry will no longer be protected. And that could be leverage for the queen. Ah, leverage for the queen. This is, <laughs> all of a sudden, this is sounding so, uh, sounding like we're in, a, we're in an episode of, the, of that show, The Crown, which I've seen like two episodes of. But anyway, so, uh, so uh, Tiana, you, you are a, what do we call people? What are, if you're younger than millennial, you're Gen Z? Is that right? Yeah. So you're, you're Gen Z, yeah. you're hip, you're with it, you know the things. Why do the, young, why do the young people, pardon me while I put on my old man hat, why do they give a crap about the British royal family in this country? Because, like, I see on Instagram, on social, people are obsessed with what's going on here. And I sit here, and producer Mark is, uh, I look at him, and he doesn't, he doesn't give a you-know-what either. Because it's sort of this, this relic of the past. You know, if you look at the collapse of monarchy and ability across you know, across the planet, really. I mean, there are still a few places that have maintained their dynasties, but even even much weakened uh, um, monarchy in Japan, in even in the UK, the monarchy has been weakened under the current queen. Um, but it's sort of there are these figures who are so silent yet so visually known by the entire planet, and I think that there is still a little bit of affection for the past. You know, Princess Diana, she was the princess of hearts. She was she was a genuinely charitable figure. She did all, she did so much for the globe during the AIDS crisis and all that. Since then, the monarchy hasn't been much except for, you know, kind of style icons, cute babies. And the same way we care about Kardashian babies, we care about royal babies because they're cute and they have pretty parents. But this instance, this instance has been so culturally fueled. Because in America, a lot of the discourse about Meghan Markle has been about privilege, and because she's black, she's apparently a victim here. All forgetting that she's also a beautiful and wealthy Hollywood actress who is married to a prince, so it's a little bit different um, than the normal narrative. How are you? Uh, where, where do you fall on the on the scale of of like being on Team Markle, or because people she seems to be very polarizing with folks. So I, to her credit, she has leveraged what she's been given expertly she was a deal or no deal suitcase lady who then was a supporting actress on a show that really only had one good season and she used that to become a socialite to meet members of you know sort of the the canadian and british social scene who were then able to introduce her to prince harry so on a purely narcissistic level i respect the hustle um I also think it's wildly tacky, and you do not go into a monarchy to then try and take it down. I mean, I think monarchy is dumb. I think monarchy should be abolished. But if you're going to join that, you don't tear it apart, let alone a family, unless if you're a truly hardened ideologue. I got to say, it's uh, it was interesting to see also, you know, that guy Piers Morgan, who in one of CNN's moments of just... What the heck are they thinking? You know that that guy had a show at CNN for years because that's what that's what Americans really want—a a pompous British uh, lib jerk who's going to tell us all about how we shouldn't own guns. I, you know, CNN is is insane <laughs> for many reasons, but he is really anti Meghan Markle, which I do find kind of amusing. Yes, yeah, so Pierce feels per- feels personally slighted by her because 
they were sort of friends when she and Harry first started dating and then Megan did with him, which is what she did with everyone, which was basically dump everyone so that way she could become a member of the elite. So, yeah, he has an axe to grind. And honestly, it's a little bit warranted. I do understand. I, I, I get why this is sort of an ambiguous, low-stakes case if you're American. If you're British, I understand why this is a massive offense. Yeah, and I also, when, when are we going to convince Americans, Tiana, to stop thinking that people are smart because they have a British accent? Can we do that? Can we start a campaign? It does not mean anything. I don't know why, I don't know why. Americans oh, are still God, so impressed please. by British accents. You turn on our news channels, and like every fourth person has a British accent. It's like, this is America. Speak American. <laughs> hey, you know, Buck, it's good that you're pointing out the UK. Otherwise, I'd be racist, right? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 amazing to me the way that this just sort of continues on. But anyway, I'm I'm fighting a lonely campaign on on that one. By the way, are you gonna go see the bombshell movie, and are you gonna give us a review of it? Um, I might. I need to. I that came out a while ago, though. I have so many movies I need to see. But yes, I might actually see that. I mean, we already got Jesse Kelly, who's a mutual friend of ours. He's lined up to talk to us about 1917. But we got to get you to come back on a Friday. What's the What's the top of the? Because people are heading out to their weekends. What's the top of the movie or Netflix queue? Oh, okay. So I'm going to use all fictional names right now. I saw last night, Netflix, there is a show where um, Betty Draper from Mad Men plays Effie from Skins' mom, and they're both ice skaters. That is what I'm going to watch this weekend. That is what I'm super jazzed for. What is that called? I forget the name of it. I just saw it last night. I was <laughs> okay. so tired, and I was like, I should watch this, but then I had to go to bed. But, yeah, that that is top of the queue right now. All right. Fair enough. Well, uh, thank you so much, Tiana Lowe. Always good to have you come hang out in the Freedom Hut. Washington Examiner, folks. Check out her commentary there. Also, follow her on the Twitter, at Tiana Lowe. Tiana, take care. Thank you. Bye. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. This is part of the dark underbelly of American society. The racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight. If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us. And Donald Trump will win. The dark psychic force taking over this country, taking over America. Marianne Williamson had a viral moment in that debate. Listen to me, girlfriend. You've got to just stand up straight and fight against that dark psychic force. Uh, Unfortunately, Marianne Williamson's candidacy is over. (laughs) Her candidacy is over. She is, uh, as of today, it has just been announced, breaking news, Marianne Williamson is not going to be Express. Producer Mark, by the way, is going to have to get rid of his Marianne Forever t-shirt now. She is, was still in the race? Yeah, technically. How? Because she was just in she it. She just never officially dropped out? Yeah, never officially dropped out. That's you know, incredible. Trying to, trying to sell some there books. There going to be some random names in the next couple of months that are just, oh, I'm dropping out of the race. You were in it? Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Huh? yeah. I, I think Marianne, yeah, Marianne Williamson, man, she was, you know, I, I did the Bill Maher show and she was a guest on it. And so we got to hang out a little bit backstage. Sure. 
And uh, she told me that she actually, she, you know, she told me that she like appreciated me and, and gave me a hug, which I thought was kind of that's uh, very nice. Interesting. Did she get some energy off of you? Um, I mean, maybe she was trying to cure my dark psychic force. You know did what I'm saying? Did it do anything? Uh, I don't know. I'm still, I still wake up in the morning pretty blue sometimes. You know, so I'm not sure that it really made it all go away. Okay. But she is, you know, look, she was an interesting. She was interesting in that mix. I mean, she had one. And think about how much. I mean, if we really look at this as a business proposition, because that's what this really is. Think about how much free essentially PR she got out of that, right? Sure. I mean, you know, now, now she really wasn't a household name before. I'm not sure she quite is yet still, but she's a lot, a lot closer than she yeah. was. A just lot more people on, know who she exactly, is. Exactly. A lot more people know who she is, and she's a business lady. So, you know, the lines between running because you actually think you're going to be president and running because you view this as a brand-enhancing experience are very, those lines feel very thin these I mean, days. What do you think Tom Steyer's doing? Well, he doesn't need the money. No, but well, he's yeah, getting his name well, out there. Well, that's a vanity thing, yeah. of course. Yeah, he, but he's he's like a baby billionaire. You know, he's only worth like one point something billion. I mean, oh, Bloom, only Bloomberg God, feels so bad. Yeah, for him. exactly. Oh. Bloomberg is worth like, I mean, it's a private company, so if selling it would be. But I mean, he's worth like forty billion dollars. That's I want. I want Bloomberg billions. You know what I mean? I want billions where you just give away a billion, and be like, yeah, I don't even need. Here's a billion that I don't even need. Listen, I'll take millions first. Yeah, I'd like to get to the seven figure range, and yeah. then I'd be really excited about. If I even can things. sniff that range in my life, I'd be happy. Yeah, that'd be that'd be, that'd be exciting. I, I agree with you. So we got we got some things to uh, things to look forward to, things to work on. Um, you know, Trump is. Uh... Oh wait, there's something else I wanted to say. For the first time. Uh, I, we, we will have to have the dog conversation. So I'm really, I'm really getting the dog itch this year, which means I want to get a dog. Not that I want to itch a dog or itch myself like a dog. That's a different thing. Um, it might be the year I get a dog, but people are giving AOC a hard, did you see this? They're giving AOC a hard time because she got a dog. She got a French bulldog, adorable little French bulldog. Let me guess. She didn't rescue it. That's right. Yep. PETA is mad at her. You know, she's getting all these leftists that are coming out. And I'm sure, I think she went to a breeder or whatever, but no, no, no. They, she got a, you know, a fancy Frenchie. My parents have a French bulldog, Tallulah. The dog's adorable. It's gotten a little heavy. I tell my parents that she looks like, you know how baby seals are white because they want to, you know, match with the ice so that they won't get eaten by polar bears? Sure. My parents' French bulldog, I tell them, looks kind of like a baby seal. <laughs> like, like, it's like white furry blob that just sort of... <laughs> they get very mad when I say that, but it's true. She looks like a, a fat baby seal. Um, but, you know, Frenchies are great dogs, great city dogs. AOC got a Frenchie. This is the first, I really mean this, this is the first decision I've seen her make where I'm like, I can I can have no problem with this. I cannot. Love Frenchies? Just, I think, yeah, I love Frenchies. They're great little dogs, and they're very popular here in New York City. And, uh, you know, she got a Frenchie. So but I don't know why PETA has to just hate. I'm at the thought that. If you have allergies, you need a hypoallergenic dog. You go to a breeder. If you live in the city, you need a smaller dog. Fine. Otherwise, you should probably rescue. There's a lot of dogs that need people homes. make. You know, people get really, uh, really huffy about the whole rescue thing too. And I just say, look, if I could rescue a puppy, I think I'd, I would do that. And I think people who rescue dogs, it's great, and you want to give them a nice home and everything else. But you know, there's a little bit of if you rescue a dog that's like two, three, four years old, or even a lot older, sometimes people rescue these dogs that are essentially canine senior citizens. It's kind of like you're taking on the problems that any somebody else may have sure. left that dog with, right? So you I mean you're, you know, it can it can be a handful. It can yeah. be. Uh, I have a friend who has a pit mix that was five years old, discarded after having puppies, but she's a great dog. Yeah. No. Oh yeah. gosh. Well, now now you're in the discussion about people that are pro pit and pro pit, and then she's the not like thing. purebred pit. But so like close, yeah, her, yeah. But but people, 
man, the people who like pit bulls love them. Yeah. And if you ever say anything about how they're dangerous, they completely lose their minds. So I don't know if you've ever seen this that. This dog is the happen. friendliest dog I've ever met. And that, people say that. Unless about, you put another them. dog near it. I've seen that too. Yes. Some dogs like, just hate other dogs and other creatures. Yeah. But love humans. It's weird. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know how I don't know how that works. And that's all work, breeds so. too. I had a mutt. Sonny, I'm I'm with AOC on uh on the French bulldog. I cannot get mad at her for that, even though PETA's mad at her and it would be an opportunity for some people to try to you know, try to find some means to criticize her for something that's not particularly important, but anyway, it's dogs. It's Friday. I felt like, why not? By the way, the Dow's at 29,000. The economy's crushing it. And are we going to get a China trade deal this year? Trump spoke about that. I just want to touch on this for a second. Play clip 11, please. We'll start uh, right away negotiating phase two. It'll take a little time. I think I might want to wait to finish it till after the election, because by doing that, I think we can actually make a little bit better deal, maybe a lot better deal. Ah. Trump understands the very uh, the very basic truth of this negotiation that is ongoing with China, which is that the Chinese, from their perspective, why get any really big deal going? I mean, why why take any real moves here when you could have a Democrat? And this is what I've been saying all along. I'm just I'm not saying I'm always right, but I'm not saying I'm not. Uh, I've been I've been pointing out that the the uh, incoming Democrat, if a Democrat beats Trump, would have so much pressure to just abandon this initiative to try and get a fairer trade relationship with China because it is a Trump thing. Just because Trump is involved, that is enough for Democrats to want to have a Democrat president come into office and say no more of whatever Trump was doing. So it looks like things with China now are heading in a more positive direction, but I also believe it's likely to freeze for a while here while they see how this election plays out. Uh, and look, I, I, I'm, I don't want to be overconfident about anything because we have so much time between now and when votes are actually cast. And we know the degree of desperation that's out there uh, for Democrats. I, I'm, not, I'm not skipping over this, by the way, that there's a, the job growth was a little less than was an, anticipated. Uh, I forget what the numbers were. Oh, yeah, 145,000. Labor Department said non-farm payrolls. They looking. They were looking for 160,000. So okay. I mean, it was a little below. Could also be revised later. Keep in mind, though, we're at a 50-year low unemployment rate right now. I mean, this is the this is the best that the country has felt economically in my lifetime. And you see almost no stories about this from the mainstream media. Nothing. Gee, I wonder why that is. I wonder why. Whereas under Obama, they had to run stories about how get used to the crappy economy. This is what you deserve. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. It is time for the Roll Call, everybody. Before you go off into your weekend and all the amazing things happen, it is time to get into the Roll Call action. By the way, I'm going to be out in Los Angeles for a couple of days next week. So Team Buck LA, 
Send me on Facebook your recommendations for cool, fun things to go, places to see, food to eat, all that stuff. I, I always have a good time in L.A., although hopefully I'll be able to use Uber when I'm out there because I don't want to have to actually drive. Good heavens. All right, we're going to get into the email inbox first here. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. That is how we get this thing going. Buck, glad to hear your voice has recovered. With the cold, that sounded like a cross between Adam Carolla and Elizabeth Warren. Whoa! Glad you powered through. There's no replacement for the Buckster. Thank you so much, Paul. I really do appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad, too. The last few days have been the first I've really felt healthy since basically Christmas. It's, it was kind of a long haul there of... Really feeling crap. Everybody, everybody has been getting uh, sick around me. I mean, just this cold's all over the place. Everyone's got sniffles. And, you know, even even, produ- even producer Mark, who I feel like, you know, has the um, immune system of a Sherman tank. Uh, you got sick, right? Yeah, I've taken one sick day in three and a half years with this company. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see? Even he got sick. So there's something. There's something nasty going around. I just work through it. Uh, like course. you do. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if, you know, the show must go on, man. The Freedom Hunt, you can't close, you can't stop while the Freedom Hunt's hot. Uh, Eric, hey, Buck, I listen to you every day on Apple Podcasts from California. I heard you talking about a documentary on facial hair and thought you'd like this. It was made by my childhood friend. Between the upper lip and the navel, navel pa- nasal, not navel, passageway, a modern account of the mustache. Uh Huh. Shields high. All right. I'll have, to check, I'll have to check that out. But yes, facial hair is very much a fashion, just like other things are too. And facial hair is definitely having a, a moment right now, particularly beards. Although Trudeau has got uh, like a, uh, what do you call it? A go, like a goatee. Is there a difference when, when, it's, when you have the mustache connected to the goatee versus just, just, isn't a goatee really just the thing on the chin? Or if you could do the mustache into, you know what I'm saying? It's the whole. It's a mustache going towards the bottom, but then you have nothing on the side. Right, right, right. But that. Yeah, but yeah. so, what is it when it's just fur down on the bottom of the chin, but nothing on the mud? You know, how do you differentiate? I think that's just a soul patch, maybe. That no, that's just. Well, that's just when you have the the right here. Yeah, I'm not you know, sure. Right on the maybe bottom. Maybe half of the, a goatee, we'll call it. It's like kind of like a half goat. Yeah. It's not the full goat anyway. Which why would you do that? Just shave. I, I mean, dude. Some people, you know, they. I, I might go full mutton chops. You know, maybe that's going to become like my thing. <laughs> Well, I got I got people who are watching us on Pluto. Peter, people are watching on Pluto TV channel two forty eight. The first, they'll see that I got shorn today, man, for the first time in a few weeks. And whew, man, it was you know, like what? shorn, like they chopped all. You can't tell they chopped all my hair off. I've man. never heard that term before. Shorn? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shortened? Shorn? S H O R N. Never, never have heard. That I think term it's before. a word. It's a very bougie term. If yeah, it is it, one, it is. Well, yeah, I mean, they took a weed whacker. It was like it was like they found. Remember the movie Harry and the Hendersons where they had Sasquatch. It's like they shaved, no. like they shaved Sasquatch right there on the barbershop floor. It was crazy. So, I'm glad I finally got uh, you know I'm more aerodynamic now. Do I even want to know what that cost you? Uh, Sixty bucks. Oh my god! Do you think that's a lot? Yes. You know how much my haircut is? How much? Free. My wife does it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Sixty bucks for a haircut in New York, and I'm yeah. telling you, uh, people probably across the country are like, "That's it." Yeah, I know. In most places, I think yeah. a barbershop haircut. And this is New York City. I mean, a studio apartment here, folks, a studio apartment, 500 square feet in like, you know, a sort of run of the mill neighborhood in Manhattan. Three grand. Three grand. That hurts me just to think about it. Yeah. That's for a studio. Uh, So, yeah, $60 for a haircut is is pretty, maybe more like 40 or 50, I guess, would be standard. But, you know, I go to a fancy guy. Um, 
But uh, obviously, I got to trust the. You can't just give the swoop to anybody. Of course, somebody not. who's. Mm. I want somebody with a PhD in swoops. I don't want somebody who's like. Do they give out the PhDs apprentice. in swoops? Well, they should. And uh, you know, there's what was the. Uh, um, you said your your wife does it. Yes. She just she shaves your head. Well, I only get a buzz cut. What am I going to pay some guy twenty bucks to do that? For? Yeah, that's, that's probably true. I, I bet the average haircut. We could probably Google. It. I bet the average haircut for a man. By the way, do you know how much women spend on their hair in this? Oh city? my God, too much. I've, I've, you know, as a man who's been on his fair share of, of dates, you know, and, and living the single life here in New York City, uh, women, I, I know this is a true story. I know a woman who will fly back home. She lives in New York City, has for like fifteen years. Fly back home to North Carolina to have her hair cut in North Carolina because she's happy with it there, and it's actually cheaper. To do that than to get her hair fully done in New York City. Cheaper to fly there. She stays with her family and she gets to see her family, so she likes it. Okay. But I mean, I mean, so we got to, it's got to be five, six hundred bucks to get your hair done. This is insane. And I always talk to women who get, especially if they have long hair and they'll do the, it'll like be, they'll cut two inches off of it. And I'm like, I can't. I do that for you. They're like, Oh no, only Alphonse. You know, some guy who comes out. He's got like a, he's got like a chemistry set in front of him with all this stuff, and yeah. he's got the 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 foil. I've I've seen this before. They have the foil in the I hair. I think that's when they dye the hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just you know they do all these all these things. I don't man. understand it, and I don't want to. I just yeah. know it comes out of my bank account now. Oh yeah. Oh, that's oh. right. Now, Mrs. Producer Mark, lady hair, you got to you gotta yeah. pay for the lady, you know, what, what do they call it? A, no, not a, a salon. stylist. Salon. Salon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Life, life is expensive. I got to start doing TikTok so I can know what the coolest. Someone sent me a TikTok video. I, I just don't even get what the stuff is. I mean, is, but... I'm like 10 years younger than you, and I have no idea what it is. Really? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I got to figure that out. Liam. Hey, Buck. Love the show. Australian listener here. Good night, mate. Thank you for your analysis and an insight into the Iran situation. On the Australian bushfire, one of the reasons they're so large this season is because the weather has been horrible for firefighting activity, with many days being 100-plus with 30 to 50-mile-per-hour winds, which makes it impossible to fight fires. Another reason is because we are not adequately resourced in firefighting, meaning there's not a way to get on top of the fires. We do have good days for firefighting activity. Shields high. Liam, I'm sure that is all true, and I appreciate you giving me a an on-the-ground perspective as to what's really going on there with all those fires. And uh, thoughts and prayers go to the folks in Australia. And by the way, we didn't play it. Do we still have that yesterday from the uh, firefighters who arrived by any chance? Remember yesterday we had – you have a bunch of uh, American firefighters showed up. You know, the thing about Americans, you know, we love Brits. We love Canadians. We love Aussies. You know, we just – the English-speaking peoples of the world, we have such an affinity for – we really do feel like they're our cousins or something. And uh, we have a bunch of American firefighters. Here's what happened in Iraq. Spontaneous applause erupting from the airport. I think it was in Sydney. It might have been in Melbourne. I don't know. One of those cities. Um, Americans arriving to just help out with the fires, help out and fight. Uh, so firefighters getting some love from the Australians. Everybody likes firefighters. Um, so... Yeah, man, that's a thing. That's that's a thing that's going on. What? Oh, I was in the middle of roll. I was like, "What were we talking about?" Roll call, of course. Tim, regarding your comments about more on uh, on Australia stuff. Hello, Buckster. Regarding your comments about the terrible br- uh, bush fire, uh, I keep getting it wrong. Bushfires in Australia. I think this article from 2008 may be of interest. You send me an article. Shields high. Uh, 
All right, thank you. I'll check out the article. Zvi! Regarding the attack in Iraq, hey, Buck, it looks like POTUS got the message from our hometown of NYC. Zvi! Thank you so much for writing in. Um, here we go. Uh, let's see what we got here. David! Buck, I've listened to Buck Sexton's show on Talk 1200 AM in Boston every night for several years now, walking around the lake in the middle of my town while wearing earbuds. I must get my fix of the Freedom Hut every weekday in order to make my day complete. The info and explanations you provide are priceless. Thank you so much, man. That really means a lot, David. Just before Christmas, you have been talking about the Buck Sexton podcast quite a bit. I've heard of podcasts, but I had no experience downloading them or listening to them. I didn't even really understand how they work or what they are. During the Christmas holiday, I signed up for the Buck Sexton podcast, and wow, viva la difference. Listening to your show on the radio is great. Listening on the podcast is amazing. Um, well, listening on the radio, there are five to seven minute gaps while your local news and several commercials are played. That's not the case with the podcast. There are only 30 second ads. But for all intents and purposes, the podcast provides nonstop buck. I would there recommend anyone now out there to try the podcast if they have not already. Uh, try it on the iHeart app. It took about 10 seconds to set it up and it just works. Cannot re- recommend the Buck Sexton show on the uh, iHeart app highly enough. Just do it. The best gift I received on Christmas 2019 is the Buck Sexton podcast. Thank you for everyone involved. David. Well, David, that's a really nice email. Even producer Mark is smiling right now. Okay. Even producer Mark is happy. So Merry Christmas from both of us. Happy Hanukkah as well from producer Mark um, and from me. So thank you so much for, uh, for your kind words about the podcast. Yes. And it is even for those of you who are used to listening on radio and like listening on radio, the advantage of the podcast is you can listen on demand. So even if you miss listening, we still love you listening on our wonderful affiliates on your local stations. But if you miss that and would like to take the opportunity to um, listen at a later time on your own time, that's the way to do it. Uh, now let's see here. Adam, producer Mark, I think you should grab toss a coin to your Witcher soundbite when Buck hates something, shields high. Uh, that's a reference to me hating on the show The Witcher so much, which some some members of Team Buck like. So I've been getting a little heat for that. It's got to be uh, mean sound bites that I understand, though. Yeah, if you don't so. get it, it doesn't really have quite the mm-hmm. same, quite the same uh, ring to it. Nate, hey Buck, I got to put Andrew Jackson on the list of the best strategic military generals. The defense of New Orleans saved the country, and when he took out the uh, the and he took out the Red Stick Indians. I don't know who that is. Epic general and a fearless man. Shields high, bro. Um, all right, Nate. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see a list. I'm sure if you did like a internet search, there's a list of the greatest generals. But a lot of stuff on the internet is, especially when it comes to these lists. You know, you see these lists of the greatest movies of all time, and everyone everyone's always putting um, Citizen Kane in there. No one likes Citizen Kane. Movies, boy, I couldn't even get through like 10 minutes. No, no one likes it. It's been told to like it. I'm sorry, I do not buy into the big film propaganda. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, we're roll calling with Keith. Great show, great impressions. However, the only thing worse than some of your analogies is your singing. Whoa, whoa. Settle down, Keith. Singing is not that bad. I agree, Keith. Good job. Yeah. Well, producer Mark Please is, stop singing. Producer Mark is on your team. But 
the rest of, of the good people of the world understand. I that, don't <clears> think that's true. Well, maybe, maybe we'll take a poll, you know? You better watch out, man. You bet against me, you owe me a steak. Look at Jesse Kelly, and it's going to be like a fancy steak. It's going to be like a tomahawk, you know, the ribeye with the bone in. Sure. That's the way. Is that, but is that your, what is your go-to? Have uh, you ever I had like this a good ribeye. Are you a ribeye guy? Yeah, I'm a ribeye guy. I mean, I'm always happy with a filet mignon, but a filet mignon, as delicious yeah. as it is, feels kind of wimpy to me. You know, it doesn't it's look It's always like, very small. Yeah, That's well, that, the problem. exactly. And would Fred Flintstone order a filet mignon? No. no. Would Mr. Peanut with his top hat and his monocle? Yes, of course. You put any steak on a grill, it's much better. Well, that's always true. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just the, the carbon is the carbonization or something, mm-hmm. or the, you know, the carbonizing. Of, it you know it just I mean. puts a nice char on it. That's what I, that's, I'm yeah. going for that, the charring on it. Yeah, it's very nice. The good sear. Hey, Buck, I find it hard to believe Iran was trying to actually cause harm to any of our American or Iraqi soldiers. They fired 15 missiles at stationary targets and hit sand but they accidentally shot down a moving airliner at 8,000 feet. They know a firm line has been drawn and they dare not cross it. Shields high. If you have to watch a rom-com, check out Crazy Stupid Love. The backyard scene is hilarious. Well, thank you, Pablo. I have seen Crazy Stupid Love. I think Steve Carell is a very, very talented guy. And even though he's very famous from The Office, I think he's pretty underrated as an actor. If you guys haven't seen Foxcatcher, it's depressing, but it's a really good movie and a very, I mean, well, let me scratch that. It's a well-done movie. I'm not sure it's that much fun to watch, but Steve Carell's performance in it is is incredible. Um, he's an amazing, uh, he's an amazing dramatic actor when he wants to be. Um, Mike writes, "Wow, Buck, your Michael Caine voice in- imitation is hilarious. I think you should definitely use it more. Keep the laughs coming." Shields high. Well, Michael, thank you so much for liking my Michael Caine impression. Well. Governor, some man just want to see the world burn. You know, you've got, you've got to like talk. It's actually, you really got to get in the zone because it's a very different British accent than the other. All right, then. Michael Caine talks like this. Producer Mark's going to run his face into the wall if I don't stop talking like this. Doesn't like it. Wow. It's like that. I know how to make you stop. Damn. Okay, okay, all right, I give, I give, I give. Man, I got to yell uncle. He knows. I, I Whistling is, it is it is my kryptonite, man. People whistle on the street, and sometimes I shoot them a look like they've really, like they've insulted my family, and then I have to sort of like catch myself and be like, no, no, they're not actually a bad person. They just don't understand that whistling burrows itself into my cerebral cortex and like creates a hole of darkness and rage. I hate it. I, I had, a, I had a, a teacher in high school who all, who was like me. And I do think there's actually a there's like a condition that people have where whistling like particularly agitates them. Sure. Um known as being a crazy person. But no, really, I think it's an actual <laughs> medical well, thing. Well, I apologize to other people that aren't you. Right. And and he uh he would go around if you whistled anywhere in the school, he would give you detention on the spot. He just was like he was crazy about it. I remember this cuz I saw him do it and I was like, "Yes." I have chosen the form of the destructor. That was easily your favorite teacher. Oh, I mean, he was a jerk, but he was great about this. Yeah, for sure. All right, my Michael Caine impression is hilarious. I've got to, you know what I want to work? I want to work on my Mark Stein. Mark Mark Stein. He's, I like Mark Stein a lot. He's got a, like, it's kind of Canadian, kind of British. You know, his accent, yeah, you got to, this is unique, unique accents that you got to kind of lean into a little bit to be able to get. Nathaniel. Buck, Shields high. I have a burning question. Can we now say that Barack Obama, John Kerry, 
have the blood of 100-plus Ukrainians on their hands for funding a terrorist regime that is inept with its weaponry. Well, Nathaniel, I see your point, but unlike the left, we will not make arguments that we know are uh, not accurate or that are not fair-minded because we're better than they are. And um, that's going to be it, man. We're going to get rolling here into our weekends. Please do spread the word. Pass the buck. Tell people about The Buck Sexton Show. If you didn't give me a birthday present and a Christmas present yet, you can still make up for it by getting a person or two or ten to download the podcast. Just to go on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, type in Buck Sexton. Have a fantastic weekend. I'll talk to you Monday. Shields high.